Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Good evening. And joining me, as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, Pure Energy has a name. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. Okay, that tagline, it is baffling to sounding to me. So I'm going to say Shazam. No, oh, well, you're on the right lines because uh, Pure Energy has a name and its name is Powder. Oh. <laughs> Did you ever see that film about the weird kind of like bald albino kid who could shoot lightning out of his fingers? I think that's what the film's about. I haven't seen it, but I have heard it described in essentially those terms. Mm, I might be confusing it with the Mortal Kombat movies. Easy, It's easy to do. Mm, yeah, yeah. But there you it go. feels like something that Paul W.S. Anderson would have had a hand in. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has it contractually kind of like included in all his, his kind of deals that he must have someone shooting lightning out of their fingers. In fact, I'm going to say go so far as to say that that's probably the only film he's had lightning shooting out of people's fingers. I don't think he'll do it in like The Three Musketeers or Event Horizon or anything like that. I haven't seen The Three Musketeers, so I knew that he had steampunk balloons in it. So he could have had lightning coming out of someone's hands in that one. It seems in keeping. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't mind a bit of the old incongruous. Anyway, God, that was a weird diversion, but here we go. News this week. We should probably just say that we had like a week off last week. So we're back now. Sorry about that. But we had kind of technical issues last week. But we're back. We missed Comic-Con, which was a shame because there was a lot of good stuff in there. But we'll kind of, you know, plough on as if it didn't happen. And we didn't miss the scoop. But yeah, this week we've had the uh, Television Critics Association thing going on in America. uh, And a lot of kind of hot news coming off the small screen, especially from the HBO network, um, who uh, have announced quite a few things. One of which is that uh, Game of Thrones will definitely end with season eight, which is something that we've kind of of known, but it's confirmed now. So a lot of people are kind of will no doubt be upset, but then other people will be kind of excited that we're going to get to see an end. Yeah, and I think they also com- uh, confirmed either at the event or immediately before it that it's going to be two seasons of seven episodes each. Right, so okay. They are very much pursuing the ending in the same way that Lost did, where you set an end date and then you work out how many episodes you need to do, and even if that probably doesn't please your corporate overlords who would want you to try and crank out as many episodes as possible because they can get super duper high ratings or sell more subscriptions to HBO now. Mm. It probably is still, uh, it's probably for the best creatively, um, especially for such a big production where a lot of the cast seem to be moving on to other projects or wanting to move on to the next stage of their incredibly successful careers. Mm. And I think that given we, we discussed this on the Game of Thrones episode a few weeks ago, um, the, the pace at which uh, the story is picking up and the plot is moving along, um, if they've only got 14 episodes left, uh, we're probably going to rattle through it at quite a pace. Yes, which is uh, all for the better from my perspective, considering how season five, with season five, it seemed to be grinding to a halt while they were waiting for more book to be written or to see if they were going to run out of story so now that they seem to have embraced the fact that they're hurtling towards the end it it seems to have revitalized the show quite a bit Mm. um some other news that came out of uh, the hbo uh, segment of the tca was that true detective um reports of its demise have been greatly exaggerated and and it might not be dead with the the general feeling being that if it is going to move forward, season three will probably go forward without the 
the showrunner. Which I think makes a lot of sense. I think that the problem with the show in its inception was that they had the first season be super successful under the uh, under the guidance of Nick Pizzolatto and then just saying, okay, we need you to crank out in another entire season of television, more or less on your own in the space of a year. Whereas if you're doing an anthology show like that, it seems that it would be a lot easier to either get a team of writers in or to essentially hand over the reins every year to a different creative force just to keep things fresh uh, whilst also keeping the true detective moniker so this seems like it'd be a good a good fit uh, and perhaps a slightly more slightly more conducive to more uh, significant work going forward Mm. yeah i'm still not sure how i feel about true detective being kind of over because it's it is you know to use a footballing cliche it really is a game of two halves with one of the halves being extraordinarily shit (laughs) <laughs> yeah so like most england international games mm, no that's two halves being extraordinarily shit <laughs> um in fact all england international matches are like the second season of true detective like you start off with such high hopes and then eventually you just vince vaughn staring at a ceiling yeah, and it's very hard to care about any of the characters involved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Also, uh, from the HBO camp, we got final look at Westworld, the TV series of Westworld, um, which is something that has been banging about for ages, and I kind of genuinely never thought it would actually surface, but it seems to have done, and Anthony Hopkins is in it, which is something I didn't know. And neither did he, it seems, because when they were talking to him about it, he did say that it had been such a long time since they'd filmed it that he had more or less forgotten all of the stuff that he had been involved with because in the time it's done that, he's probably done about 30 different projects. Mm, all of them shit as well. I mean, he's a man who, who really likes to work. He's kind of make, making himself into a kind of like uh, Christophe Lambert with a knighthood, essentially, <laughs> which is you know, all kind of like a upmarket Rooker Hauer. Which is, you know, probably not a compliment, even though, yeah, everyone loves Rutger Hauer. He's got to subsidise his shit paintings. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but the the Westworld thing, I mean, it looks like it could be pretty decent. It's uh, the Nolan boys. They sound that sounds like a kind of Wild West gang. But the Nolan boys are behind it, aren't they? Yeah, Jonah Nolan, who is the guy who obviously co-wrote a lot of his brother's films, Christopher Nolan's films, and who also created the TV show Person of Interest, which is a very fun, tech-savvy show. So he is someone who I think feels like a very strong fit to update that story for the modern age, and the trailers that have been released and the the footage and everything makes it look uncommonly ambitious, or what would be uncommonly ambitious prior to like Game of Thrones, which obviously was... The show that demonstrated that you could do huge scale fantasy or sci-fi on TV pretty well, mm. uh, and they seem to have gone kind of all out on this one. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of fantasy and big budgets, segue. Um, we got a trailer this week for a film called The Great Wall, um, mm. which has. Uh, I mean, it kind of looks kind of cool. There's there's like Matt Damon on the Great Wall of China, and there's monsters and things. I mean, who doesn't think that's interesting? I mean. I know I certainly do, but um, it kind of uh, brings up the kind of ugly topic of whitewashing, doesn't it, Ed? But in mm. a slightly more complicated way than it first appears. Yeah, because it's a film that's a co-production between 
a Hollywood studio and a Chinese studio, and it is being directed by Zhang Yimao, who directed things like Hero and House of Flying Daggers, and who is obviously kind of a great, renowned international filmmaker. And most of the cast are people like Andy Lau, who's obviously a great Chinese actor. So there's a lot of elements there where you say, okay, this is essentially a Chinese production where they've cast a couple of American actors in it, you know, in the form of Matt Damon and Willem Dafoe to sell it to an international audience. So it's not the same as something like The Last Samurai, although, as we discovered when we were talking about this before starting, Ed Zwick was involved with this, which actually is not that surprising because he's big on his white saviour movies. Mm-hmm. But it it's not as clear-cut as something like Last Samurai, where you have a American studio telling a story essentially about Japanese characters, and you just happen to put a white character in there to be the focal point for the audience. There's obviously a bit of that, but it does feel a little a little uh, fuzzier when so much of the film is being driven by Chinese money and Chinese creativity behind the scenes. Mm. I, mean, I mean, whitewashing has been uh, kind of talked about quite significantly. It seems like a lot in the last year or so. Um, and I think it's probably going to reach its peak when we get to um, the Ghost in the Shell uh, remake. It's been remade. Um, is, is it an American production or is it an Asian production? I'm fairly sure that's a Hollywood production. It's it's the that and Akira, the two kind of anime adaptations that Hollywood have been trying to make happen for such a hugely long period of time. And and I'm fairly sure that one is is being driven by a, a Hollywood studio as opposed to a Japanese one. Mm, but they're being very coy, aren't they, as to whether or not the, the character that um, Scarlett Johansson plays is Asian or not. Um, mm. And I mean, some of the um, kind of stills that have been released so far kind of make her styling look very Asian um, but it's they're kind of not being very particularly clear whether or not she is like kind of actually Asian which leads me to believe that they probably started the production thinking she would be and maybe now I think it's not a good idea yeah the, so they have to explain away oh she's like a white girl who happens to be in Tokyo mm. as opposed to taking the story and setting it in America, which would be awful because you're essentially taking a story from another culture and completely whitewashing it in the fullest possible sense, but at least would be kind of consistent with what Hollywood does all the time, as opposed to just out and out appropriating like the actual physical, you know, uh, images of a culture Mm. to advance your own story and for commercial gain. Mm, yeah, yeah, and it wouldn't be like Hollywood to do anything for commercial gain, um, which leads us on to our next news item. I am on fire with uh, segues <laughs> this evening. The they've made the decision, uh, Marvel, in their great wisdom, that they are going to take the Infinity War films, which was kind of mooted as being two films and even announced as being two films, I think, um, and w- both with release dates. I'm pretty sure, and have decided they are now going to backtrack and just do one film. Now, we've moaned about this on the podcast before, um, about how Hollywood has an awful habit of splitting one film into two for, shall we say, nefarious financial reasons. And it's kind of very galling. Um, and we were kind of wondering whether they've Hollywood's kind of learned its lesson 
from perhaps the failure of the Hunger Games films, which I say failure, I mean, they, they still made a lot of money, but there was a, a distinct drop-off um, when they split the last film in two. Um, plus also the recent news that the uh, Divergent, Resurgent, Regurgitant series is uh, ending as a film uh, concern and is heading to the small screen, which is a, a very kind of bizarre piece of news that we probably would have talked about last week, but, you know, Here's an opportunity now. Yeah, that was one of the weirdest stories, I think, of, of this year. The the fact that a series has fallen from... I mean, it wasn't in the, the best place to begin with because it was such an obvious Hunger Games ripoff. Mm. You know, even though the books pre-existed or, or existed at the same time as the Hunger Games, the entire approach and the marketing were such so clearly keyed into trying to coast off of the the wake of the hunger games movies that it was transparent that that's what they were trying to do so for it to go from that to a third film which was a huge failure in Mm -hmm. every conceivable way commercially critically and then the fourth being committed to making a fourth film and probably already in production on a fourth film and having to just climb down from it and say yeah we aren't gonna put this in cinemas we're gonna put it on some TV channel and then use that to spin it off into a movie, which is just so strange to see a studio take a bath so publicly on a project, you know, as opposed to committing to it and saying, okay, yeah, we'll put the fourth one out and we'll just try and cut our losses. Admitting that if they put a fourth one out, no one will go and watch it is, is quite a stunning moment of honesty in Hollywood filmmaking. Mm. I mean, I'm personally less surprised by that because I saw those two films that came out and they are dog shit. Like, so, <laughs> so like, I mean, you know, if you told someone to quickly write a young adult, like, story in, like, half an hour, that's probably they'd come up with something a little bit like that because it's got a lot of elements from other ones just all kind of cobbled together in not the most compelling fashion with a cast of people who aren't, don't look particularly fussed. And even now, I still can't really remember what goes on in it. But yeah, probably for the best that they put it out to pasture because uh, I don't think that's going anywhere. I would not be surprised if this TV show did not ever happen and uh, it just kind of faded away to nothingness and we all forgot about it. Very possible. But I think what was there was some YA series that did exactly the same thing before where... They had a, f- a film that was a, a huge failure mm-hmm. and it was exactly the same sort of thing where it was, I think it was the one where they were angels or something, where it was a supernatural influence one with a romance and it was clearly being being pitched as the next Twilight or the next Hunger Games and it completely failed and then they said, okay, well, we're going to just put it on TV and hope no one notices <laughs> and the TV show has been kind of a success i think it got a second season but it's it's very strange to see that happening but i guess it also speaks to all the corporate synergy that if they do have a property and they are going to try and make it work in whatever way they can they can just have such a massive climb down and say yeah this is probably not gonna happen any other way unless we take it out of the big screen and and kind of try and squeeze it onto the small screen where in all honesty it probably fits a little more easily Mm, yeah, I take the lead from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which everyone remembers as you know a really fun TV show. 
Um, but not many people remember the terrible film. The, well, not the terrible film, but the film that didn't really work uh, particularly well. That it was kind of inspired by. Maybe they'll draw hope from that. Who knows? The last bit of news we're going to talk about this week was the publication of a list of a thousand films that the film director, Edgar Wright, uh, announced. I think it was was it kind of a time with Mubi, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. And he'd kind of uh, decided to publish a list of his th- a thousand of his favourite films. Um, and that was kind of cool. It's not always nice to kind of read lists. Lists are fun. They don't mean anything, guys, before you get too excited. But they're always kind of fun to read. But people kind of have somehow weirdly taken offence to this list. And, like... Twitter went a bit silly last night. It was kind of like people kind of reacting to it in a way that I didn't think they would, which was a kind of knee jerking at the fact that it was like a bit of an obvious list, completely overlooking the fact that uh, there are a thousand films on this list. So there's going to be some famous films on there, you know, brace yourselves. Um, But also like people were complaining that certain films that they personally liked weren't on the list. Again, kind of completely ignoring the fact that this was a personal list written by someone who had, you know, an opinion that it was, wasn't was kind of open for debate. It was just he wanted to make a list of his favourite films. And it kind of raises two questions, really. One, why are people so stupid to, like, get <laughs> upset about it? I mean, I can't even put myself in the mindset of someone who'd be upset about this. But then also it kind of raises questions about how you know what is kind of seen as being part of the established film canon is kind of like really kind of set and and if you don't mention films that are seen as or or perceived as being part of this kind of canon in inverted commas um then you're either being kind of like deliberately opaque and leaving it out or you're being too obvious by leaving it in or if you're not doing enough to kind of smash the the uh, current canon by talking about stuff that is underseen or or when you talk about maybe countries or groups of filmmakers that are underrepresented that you are kind of failing as a cinephile which is Mm. is part of the argument uh and i think it was something there was a tweet i wish i could remember who said it because i thought it was it was so great in getting to the heart of this which is you would rather have someone with conventional taste who's a decent person than someone who has quote-unquote woke taste and is a douche (laughs) and uh that that is kind of the thing that it comes down to is that edgar wright who uh, i can't say that i know personally but i do know people who have kind of worked with him and have known him for for a long time and by all accounts he is just a lovely person who is super enthusiastic about the kind of films that he likes and the kind of films that he likes are sci-fi and horror and comedy and you can see that in the films that he is the four films that he's made and his work in space and his even his like music video work and everything like that you can see he has a a a specific kind of movie that he likes and that is kind of what was reflected in the list and it's a personal list that isn't is reflective so much of of him and i think that it feels very strange to see people getting really angry at someone's personal list because you are essentially attack using it as an opportunity just to attack them as a person, uh, especially if they aren't going out there to say this is the thousand greatest movies ever made, and I will broach no argument. It is literally just him saying, "Hey, here's a thousand movies that mean a lot to me." 
Mm. And I don't agree yeah. with some of the ones on there. Like I wouldn't, if I was doing this and I'm not going to, cause I would go insane. I'm uh, <laughs> trying to kind of do it, but I wouldn't put irreversible on there. Cause I really hate that movie. Mm. Uh, you know, I find it horribly unpleasant and an awful experience, but you know, that is not to me to say, Oh, he's wrong for having it on there. And, uh, and also, you know, the thing that's interesting to me as someone who has been a fan of his work since, you know, the late nineties since spaced, it's really fun to see which directors are really heavily represented on there. Like I wouldn't have thought that so many Richard Lester movies would be on there mm. because he's not someone who is really talked about as, as a kind of a great filmmaker. He's obviously made some great movies, but he's not someone who is talked about all that much. But then when you see like that, he put the knack on there and the three musketeers and you think, Oh yeah, he was a, he's a director who made very energetic, very, of the moments like zeitgeisty pop culture adult movies it would make sense that edgar wright would have been influenced by him because that's something that crops up in a lot of his work as well so i think it feels like people are taking it as some statement of what are the the great films that only people should care about as opposed to a guy in a sense kind of opening his soul you know, in a way, and saying these are the movies that re- I really love and that in some way shaped me. And and if you are a, a fan of his work or a studier, a, a student of his work, then I think there's lots of interesting stuff to see in there in terms of how his aesthetic is shaped by the work that influenced him. Mm, yeah, uh, I, I think it's um, a slightly flawed thing to do to do so many films, just because it's it's very broad, isn't it? A thousand films is a lot. I mean. Mm. A lot of people don't even watch a thousand films in their entire lifetime. So, like, that's, you know, quite a lot to kind of take in. Um, and you feel like you could pad that out quite considerably with, like we say, the established films that, you know, people would say, oh, God, I can't believe you haven't put fucking Touch of Evil on there or whatever. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, I've got a thousand films. Do you know what I mean? I could put all of Paul Verhoeven's films on here and still have, like, time to spare. Do you know what I mean? Like, have the choices to spare. So I think I think people should just, like, chill the fuck out, man. You know what I mean? He seems like a nice guy. Um, leave him alone. Yeah, and I think also you and I have some experience of this from when we did the alternate 100 for this show where we had discussions of, like, oh, have we got enough movies directed by women on there? Have we got enough movies from the foreign language on there? And uh, I think the, the answer to that would absolutely be no. <laughs> I think mm. that there aren't there aren't enough on there if you're trying to make some sort of list that is representative of the scope and the breadth of cinema. But you couldn't do that in a hundred films anyway. So you'd we our, our so, so end solution to that was just to basically say we're just going to have to put the films on there that we really like that we don't think get enough love. And if that means that there's a lot of kind of horror genre stuff on there or sci-fi or thriller comedy stuff then that's just the way that it's going to go because that's who we are and it's a personal list and I, I feel like that's the same thing with the whole Edgar Wright thing is it's a personal list it's his the films that he loves and I, I find it very strange to for people to have a go at him for that especially because I do feel there is a fair a fair degree of variety on there he does try and cover a lot of ground in a thousand movies and the fact that he doesn't like do a deep dive on the french new wave or something you know it's just those films don't mean a huge amount to him or he he may not have seen them or he has seen them he does really love them but he, they just didn't come to mind when he was putting the list together you know there's lots of explanations that aren't oh he's like 
someone who is incredibly mediocre and has no interest in the finer things of cinema. Mm. That and that's to say that the French Two Wave represents the finer things in cinema. It might to mm. you, but it might not to someone else. Do you know what I mean? Just like, yeah, kind of, yeah, let it go, guys. You know, it's just yeah. a fucking list. Um, yeah, um, but there you go. Um, did we once have a feature on this show called Bullshit Lists? We did. We have a jingle and everything, but I think we only yeah. ever did it once. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. Oh, we could have dusted that jingle off. I like a good jingle. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So that's the news this week. What are we talking about uh, in, the, in the main show, Ed? We are talking about depictions of police in film and TV. Mm, this, was, this was kind of uh, sparked by the show that we recently kind of got into, The Night of, the, the new HBO show, um, which very much fits into the kind of police procedural vibe. And we thought it'd be interesting to talk about um, kind of the tropes of you know the kind of cinema explore and and TV exploring um, the kind of guys and girls who work in law enforcement and if you think about it it kind of goes all the way back to the early days of cinema and remains to be relevant now there's always cops uh, in films and on TV there's obviously if you think about um, a lot of storytelling being about kind of like the the struggle between good and evil. The, the the struggle between law and chaos is is a story as as kind of old as that really, and if you go back to the early days of cinema, you've got something like the Keystone Cops, where you've got um, kind of cops running around being slapsticky and and goofy and kind of uh, hitting each other in the face with ladders, and then you know wind forward several decades, and you've got Harvey Keitel in Bad Lieutenant, which the two fence posts uh, illustrate just the breadth of of representations of police officers uh, in culture. Um, why do you think that we are so compelled um, by the boys and girls in blue, Ed? It's a job that, by its very nature, puts people in danger. Mm. They have to go out there, and certainly in America, they risk you know life and limb. But even in, in Britain as well, if you go out there, they, you risk life and limb to keep the peace. And you know, there's that idea of it being a thin blue line that keeps society together and even in stories where where police aren't necessarily in danger i feel like there is something very compelling about examining the sort of person who would commit to a life of public service where you have to go and confront the ugly side of humanity on a fairly regular basis even if you're just a beat cop who has to go to like scenes of domestic violence or, or be the first person on the scene on a murder all the way to homicide detectives who have to investigate that and try and piece everything together. Mm. And do you think that like kind of representation has changed dramatically, like specifically after the kind of the production code ended where, you know, you, your cops were very much good guys and the you know the villains were very much bad guys. And then after the production code ended, kind of uh, mid fifties, was it? Yeah, yeah. Then we got uh, slightly more kind of complex representations of you know our law enforcement officers. Yeah, that that is definitely true. I think in the early days of cinema, I think there was more leeway before the production code came in. There was more leeway to depict cops as being having negative uh, having negative qualities, whereas you know during the production code era that stuff would have to be couched in in terms to kind of explain why a cop might be dirty or you'd have to portray them as a an individual as opposed to a sign of some sort of systemic problem 
whereas i think after the production code and certainly in america if you go into like the 70s if you look at something like the french connection mm-hmm. their depiction of cops there essentially is that cops are all kind of terrible people trying to do a do a public service and their methods for doing that are, can be you know violent bordering on illegal you know uh, and that is definitely something that you see as the morality clauses in the in the production code essentially saying that you couldn't depict law enforcement negatively because it would reflect badly on on society fell away even though like if you actually look at the history during that same period of time there were police doing horrible things you know police in in america certainly during that time there's lots of corruption there's lots of racism there are untold accounts of you know, police op- uh, police who are being partic- uh, depicted in culture as, you know, sort of like a Joe Friday, you know, dragnet thing of being someone who's just a dedicated, efficient person trying to stamp that stamp out all of the uh, all of the people who are trying to cause problems in society were, you know, murdering black men in their cells and things like that. You know, so there is definitely there was definitely a great uh, period of. Uh, of whitewashing to go back to a, a term we've already used but in a different context of whitewashing what exactly the police did mm. and where do you think the obsession with detectives comes from do you think that that stems from detective fiction how popular things like sherlock holmes have always been that you know to see a great mind trying to solve a mystery um or do you think that it's detectives themselves that are more interesting to us I think in the early days it was more the the former. I do think it was the mystery aspect, mm. the Sherlock Holmes or the Poirot, you know, of having a mystery and then having a brilliant person in there who picks out the clues and determines, okay, this this happened, that this happened, so therefore this person did it, and you gather gather everyone in the in the drawing room and slowly work through all the various suspects, you know. Uh, but I think over time it has become more a case that people are more interested with the people solving the crimes themselves. I think a lot of that comes through on TV shows. I think if you look at something like in the 90s, Homicide, Life on the Streets, a big part of what that show makes that show interesting is it's a character show about these policemen whose personal lives are often complete wrecks and are often destroyed by their obsessiveness and again by the fact that they have to go out there uh, you know it's in the title of the show every episode they're going to be looking at people who have been killed and trying to figure out what caused this to happen and and i think that seeing the effects of that on the characters over time is what made that show really really compelling uh, in a way that i think the more digestible and arguably shallower pleasures of something like a law and order didn't Mm. And that brings into into mind a kind of a kind of a central tension in in crime fiction in general, where where is how important is something like realism and authenticity? And now mm. I kind of bring that up in the sense that we talked a lot on this show about The Wire, which is a very authentic show, and you know is kind of steeped in in realism um, due to the fact that you know the guy who created it spent a year, you know going around with detectives and homicide cops and, and you know learning what they do and the show is is full of these kind of tiny little moments of of things that you know really did happen and really do happen 
But then at the same time as, as The Wire was on, um, we had a, a show called The Shield, which uh, was also kind of realistic, but, you know, had Michael Chiklis bursting through uh, a door, kicking a door down with a gun literally every 10 minutes. Um, whereas in The Wire, the cops rarely got their guns out. And it's a it's a, uh, kind of a running joke throughout that show that, you know, people often forget their guns or, like, forget they even had them because the real kind of... Uh, work of a detective was you know mostly paperwork and mostly kind of like admin and kind of uh, interviewing people and kind of you know working it out through the facts rather than you know kicking down doors and and smashing skulls so you know both of those shows are great but you know where does the realism uh where does the importance of realism come into it i think in the case of the shield the realism i think comes in the character the character from the character himself from Vic Mackey being a consistent human being a terrible human being but <laughs> someone who is consistent from the beginning and end of that show and from charting his very Shakespearean rise and fall going from the first episode in which he does probably the most reprehensible thing that a policeman can do which is to shoot a fellow cop in the back of the head uh, mm. uh, and then going from there to explore his various schemes to become rich whilst also doing the public good, you know, and, and kind of how his predilections for violence are, are used by people in power to solve crimes and, and the idea of, you know, do you want someone like him on your side when you know what he's capable of and the way in which his horrible effectiveness wins over people who really shouldn't agree to let him do anything involving you know a gun Uh, Mm. and i feel like the thing that makes the shield feel realistic in addition to its its kind of semi-documentary filmmaking style where everything's very handheld and there's lots of coverage and they're running through actual streets in los angeles and things like that it's the fact that uh that that uh, michael chiklis commits so fully to that character in a way that takes the the undeniably pulpy aspects of the story and makes it compelling and feel real even if the stuff that's happening could happen like i'm sure there are policemen who will take a gang member and jam his face onto a hob to kind of sky him up but i don't think all of those things would happen to one cop Mm. you know he, he he goes through enough for entire kind of an entire library's worth of stories about bad policemen happening, just happening to the one guy over the course of the seven seasons. Mm, yeah. It's interesting that like, well, in kind of light of all the kind of blue lives matter stuff that's been happening in the last few weeks, that the riposte to that is when people say, you know, there are good cops and bad cops. Like the idea that there should just be cops. And if there are bad cops, they shouldn't be in the police force. Mm. A good cop is just a cop. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it's it's interesting how, like, the kind of the rank and file are, uh, are portrayed in kind of, like, film and TV. Um, can you think of any examples where it's kind of celebrated that a cop is doing things by the book rather than it being a characteristic of them, like you say, Joe Friday, who is depicted as having, you know, a stick up his ass. Uh, I mean, the the one that immediately leaps to mind as the ultimate example of a good cop would be uh, Al Pacino in Serpico, 
mm-hmm. where he's a guy who's so committed to the idea of defeating police corruption that he gets shot on the job uh, and puts his life at risk every day in order to do it. And But I think that also, it, it, it touches on, again, the idea of a cop be, uh, being committed to the public good to such an extent that it destroys his personal life and almost gets him killed and also causes him to be completely alienated from the people that are meant to have his back. Mm. Is, is Serpico like very much a product of that kind of new Hollywood era? Um, the kind of suspicion of authority, um, that kind of anti-establishment kind of view it's odd to think that like Serpico is a kind of a paragon of virtue um, would represent a hero during that time because he is a police. He is actually part of the establishment. Yeah. I think it's, it's certainly aesthetically it's, it's of that period. And I think that it's, it, it operates in a very interesting kind of no man's land in that it is anti-authoritarian because it's saying, Hey, the police are really corrupt and we need to, do something about it but like you say it is about a guy who has at the heart is at the heart of the institution and wants to get it it wants to improve it and but it's also very clear-eyed about the sense that you're not going to be able to completely clear out all of the bad guys you might be able to take down a cell of them but the institution attracts people who are going to be violent or who are going to want to use their position to enrich themselves in some way because if your job is to take down criminals eventually you're going to meet a really rich criminal who will pay you to help them out hmm yeah yeah. do do you think that um a lot of the kind of interest in detectives and, and kind of police is driven by the fact that because the work they do is so extraordinary and dangerous and and kind of uh fascinating and macabre i guess that they have to, by their nature, um, be kind of slightly unusual people, uh, in the sense that you get a lot of detectives and kind of police who are kind of portrayed as being quite extreme in their kind of personality quirks, with with you know someone like Sherlock Holmes being the prime example of someone who is you know a very eccentric kind of. Uh, but the, the, their kind of intelligence comes from that kind of difference. They, they are so much kind of like so far removed from what a normal person is. Yeah, I feel like even though it's a job that in a sense is is blue collar, mm-hmm. because literally, I guess, uh, is, is a blue collar job in that you would often get guys who maybe don't have a lot of other options will join the police. And there is a very much a sense that it is a working class profession to have uh, to volunteer to protect the community. When you look at detective fiction, you do certainly find people who exist in extreme, uh, extreme examples of of what that job entails. I think a good example of a film that actually embodies through its characters, a lot of the extremes would be something like LA confidential Mm -hmm. where the three main character, main police characters, the detectives played by, uh, by Russell Crowe, Kevin Spacey and Guy Pierce are on the one hand a bruiser who is very very willing to use violence to to kind of get what he wants and who's someone who 
is willing to you know frame a guy if he thinks that he's guilty and that it's the only way that he can guarantee conviction you have a guy who is in love with the allure and the fame that comes with being a cop and the glamour that comes with the the job and especially in la where you can get on the payroll of a lot of very powerful people and and get your name in the papers and you have a guy who is so by the book and so um so dedicated to the idea of advancing himself through the police force just by following the the letter of it and and using his using it as a jumping off point for his kind of great ambitions uh and but they're all deeply dysfunctional as a result of that and it's uh, an interesting example of a of a cop film which makes the argument subtly that there are essentially no truly good cops in the sense that there are no well-adjusted policemen Mm. do you think that the idea of um kind of like non-complex characters is kind of is is kind of a kind of bygone thing do you think that the kind of the guy in the, the black and white hats um that idea is over now and and every kind of police person we see um or kind of law enforcement officer from now on is exists entirely in shades of gray I think so. I think The Wire is an interesting example in that it's a show about cops who are, for the most part, kind of good in that they exist on the right side of the spectrum in that regard. Mm-hmm. But like you say, they are deep, they are different shades of grey, like Minority is a complete fuck up. Um, uh, Lester Freeman is so kind of dedicated to his job that it pretty much led to him being exiled and he's so committed to it that eventually it ends up with him being forcibly retired uh herc is probably corrupt uh um uh, and they are they all embody a lot of their own biases and prejudices and things like that uh but they are if you were to say are these the good guys they are undoubtedly the good guys but i think if you were to look at those people in an earlier age of filmmaking or of uh depictions of policemen on television they could very easily have been the villains in those sort of shows. Mm. Or, or even oh, yeah. for an episode. Mm, absolutely. Um, you yeah, know, it would have been not too much of a stretch to imagine that. Um, we talked a lot about kind of police men. What about kind of police women and women in law enforcement? It always appears that whenever we're dealing with um, a main character being a woman in a, in a, in a film or TV show, um, the differences are highlighted kind of throughout. And a great example of that is something like Silence of the Lambs, mm. which is um, which obviously makes a point of saying that uh, our hero in this story is Jodie Foster, who is uh, wet behind the ears, uh, not particularly kind of experienced, but she clearly is, you know, thoroughly capable of, of kind of solving this crime, even if she doesn't know it yet. And there's so many bits in that film where... Um, the camera kind of takes her point of view and she we feel very isolated, like everyone's looking at her and they're looking at her because she's the only woman in the room. Um, can you think of any other examples um, where, you know, that's the case? Where Or, or can you think of an example where um, the difference of it being a woman is, is not the kind of the principal thrust of the film? Uh, I can't think of any film examples off the top of my head, but I could think of a TV example fairly easily, which is the procedural Rizzolian Isles, mm-hmm. which is about a you know female cop and a medical examiner working together. And 
uh, one of them, I'm assuming Rizzoli, although you know I can't, I couldn't tell you with any any certainty, is like the almost pro- uh, prodigally kind of tough. You know, she embodies the idea that for a woman to be a police officer, they have to be thirty times tougher than any man doing the same job, which is probably true because there's a lot of systemic bias and it's a job that has been and remains very kind of male dominated for a very long time. But I get the feeling that that is in that show it takes it maybe a little too far to the extreme. In that you know you often if you have women in in TV shows and movies playing policemen, they invariably push them really far to the extreme of just being incredibly tough often very unglamorous i often feel think of um melissa leo in homicide as being an example of that of where they deliberately make her seem incredibly unglamorous to make it just seem like that's what you need to be if you're a woman cop uh or, or another example in brooklyn 99 the uh, character of um is it uh diaz which one's the really tough one rosa is it yeah rosa that's it um yeah, it's like where she is essentially a Terminator. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that, that is, is essentially what they've made her. She's very much like the Terminatrix in T3. She is very much a character who embodies that that idea that uh, a female police officer is either incredibly tough or they're just kind of overly sensitive and not ready for the job. And I, I can't really think of many films or tv shows where you have people existing in the middle of between those two extremes Mm, i think well i've just thought of a couple okay Uh, you'll be you'll be pleased to know good um one would be uh fargo oh yeah that's uh, a great one where um not only is our our hero uh a lady cop uh she's also heavily pregnant lady Mm. cop um and yet she seems to be the smartest person (laughs) in in the entire like state of minnesota um, and then uh, one of the other examples I can think of is Out of Sight, mm. uh, where Jennifer Lopez's character from the beginning has is the match of George Clooney. Um, you know, the first well, even though he bundles her into that car, the first thing she does is arrest him, shoot her way out, and then spend the rest of the the, the film successfully tracking him down and and putting him in jail. Um, yeah, it's mentioned that you know. She is uh, kind of uh, a tough cookie from, you know, um, yeah, her dad's a cop and, you know, kind of all this kind of stuff. Um, but it's not ever kind of dwelled upon that, you know, in a, she's certainly not unglamorous it's, and it's, it's certainly never kind of like used against her. She's not defined by the men around her. Yeah, I know that's a, that's a great one. That's a, I feel a hugely underrated movie outside. Even though people talk about it as being one of the great films of the 90s, I still feel as if it's underrated for how good it is at depicting a a federal marshal like that, and particularly a female one. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Alfred Hitchcock was uh, notably quite suspicious of uh, anyone in the kind of, like, police field. Why do you think that was, Ed? And, do, like, is that just one of his kind of weird kinks... You know, like his blondes thing. Uh, it could. It's definitely one of his his neuroses, and it comes from the the oft repeated story about how his dad once took him to a police station and told the policeman there to lock him in the cell for like half an hour or something to instill a respect for law and order in him. But it's, what it ended up doing was made him deeply afraid of authority for his entire life, and 
I feel that what you see in a lot of his films is that the police are not necessarily the main villain, but they are a force that is incredibly easily manipulated by the main villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think his depiction of the police, if you look at something like North by Northwest or The Wrong Man, um, you know, the, the film that literalized the underlying theme of most of his work, you see them as a kind of formless authority that can be pointed to at the wrong person and have that person's life be destroyed with no real recourse to fight back. Uh, mm. And I feel like if you look at a lot of his films where someone is being chased cross country by the authorities, his his he has such a kind of great ambivalence towards them. Like he, he seems to view them as a group as being distrust, uh, being untrustworthy just because they will unthinkingly follow the orders being given to them as opposed to necessarily considering the situation and all its complexities Mm. let's uh wrap this up now with a discussion of some of our uh, kind of a fairly self-indulgent discussion about some of our favorite film and television cops probably got both got long lists said what have you got Oh, I already mentioned LA Confidential, which I think is a, is a great example of, like, say, all the different kinds of policemen being embodied in one film, wrapped up in a great mystery. Uh, I like a lot of uh, Kurosawa's cop films. Stray Dog, I think, is a really great character study, uh, as is, uh, and High and Low is a really fantastic police procedural in the, the sense that it's about a, a group of policemen investigating a specific mystery and slowly unwinding it in a way that is is really compelling to watch. Uh, Zodiac, I think, is is amazing. One of the great films of the last sort of ten, fifteen years or so. Uh, I really, I'm really very fond of Violent Cop, the Takeshi Kitano movie, his first directorial effort, uh, which is probably the most accurate title in in cinema history. Mm. Uh, and a film that uh, you and I once talked about very sleepily because I had to record it at like five in the morning. Once upon a time in Anatolia, the uh, the Turkish film, which takes a a traditional police investigative narrative and uses it as a as a rumination on existence and the nature the nature of crime and law and order uh, i think those are all all films that uh, i find to be like really fascinating and and offer very very different um interpretations of what it is to kind of be a policeman mm. i'm gonna you know talk about a film that we we both very much enjoy um, well, I say enjoy. It's um, fucking masterpiece. Uh, Memories of Murder, mm. uh, the Korean film, uh, kind of a, a film about uh, the obsessive quest to find uh, a killer is is kind of just amazing and um, so kind of like rich in detail and uh, kind of intense. Uh, there's so the dude does a flying kick out of nowhere, like for literally no reason, and it's awesome. Um, but that's uh, that was just added to movie, wasn't it? I think uh, we we were kind of saying yesterday. Yes, it was. It was added. It was added yesterday. I think they've got a, a run of of Korean films on there because they just also added uh, JSA, the Chanwook Park film. But yeah, it's anyone who has access to to movie should check out Memories of Murder. It's uh, it's hugely entertaining and also uh, deeply troubling in the same way that Zodiac is. Mm, I also like um, the individual 
depiction of the cop uh, played by John C. Riley in Magnolia. Mm. Um, uh, kind of like uh, a cop who isn't actually very good. He's just kind of lost, really, like all the characters in, in Magnolia. And he just happens to be in a job where um, that's not a particularly helpful thing. Um, the Tommy Lee Jones character in No Country for Old Men sure. uh, definitely kind of just embodies this 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 kind of old school approach to justice and morality. Um, he's kind of like very much existing as a man out of time. Uh, fascinating. And my favourite detective in kind of most of cinema, I say most of cinema, like all of it really, is uh, Daryl Zero in the film Zero Effect, which no one's seen, um, which is my favourite modern day version of uh, the Sherlock Holmes story with... Uh, Bill Pullman playing a uh, drug-addled um, yet brilliant detective uh, called Daryl Zero, uh, who has an assistant who is not called Watson, but is, really should be, played by Ben Stiller, um, which is a, it's a really, really good film. Um, and I would recommend people see it um, to see an interesting twist on that kind of uh, well-trodden tale. That's your lot, everyone, for on the, the subject of cops and law enforcement and detectives and so on and so forth. We're going to do some recommendations now, as we do every week, but this week we decided we'd pick films from Edgar Wright's Thousand that he picked, because he picked literally uh, everything. So we're going to plough through there and, and pick out a couple that we'd like to recommend to you. What have you got, Ed? I have the Don Siegel film from 1973, I think, called Charlie Varick, which is a really really hugely entertaining crime movie starring amongst others walter matthau and joe don baker in it uh walter matthau plays the leader of a gang of bank robbers who hit this small bank in kind of new mexico that's really out of the way and that shouldn't have a huge amount of money in there but when they get in there it has seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in there which belongs to the mob and the film goes from there in that uh, there is a divide in the gang or the two surviving members of the gang. Walter Matthau wants to give the money back because he realizes that the only explanation for why there's so much money at this bank in the middle of nowhere is that it must be belong to the mob. Uh, his partner played by, I think Andrew Robinson, who most famously played the serial killer in the first dirty Harry movie. Another movie about a, a very iconic cop. Uh, he, uh, he wants to spend it all. And then at the same time, as they're trying to figure out what to do, Joe Don Baker is hired by the mob to try and figure out what happened, try and find out if it was an inside job, because that seems the most likely explanation for why the bank happened to be hit while it had so much money in there. And it's a, a wonderfully constructed narrative. It's It's got a great performance by by Walter Matthau, as, as the aforementioned Charlie Varick, as a guy who is very wily and who is sizes up the situation fairly quickly and then very methodically puts a plan into action to get to extricate himself from it and it is is hugely enjoyable seeing him do that uh, and also joe don baker is really really good in it as the essentially the anton chigurh of it all as an, an implacable physical force who is bearing down on these two guys for the entirety of the movie mm. Cool, man. Uh, I'm going to pick a film called Prime Cuts, which is um, often overlooked uh, when we talk about what we always talk about, the whole the kind of new Hollywood movement. But it's a film that kind of sometimes slips between the cracks. Uh, It's a crime film directed by Michael Ritchie, who did uh, films like The Candidate and Downhill Racer. And he also did Fletch. Um, much later, he, you know, his career took a turn. Um, but yeah, it's a kind of a 
pretty hard-hitting uh, crime film with Lee Marvin. Well, hard-hitting crime film with Lee Marvin. We kind of we've all been there. Um, he plays like a kind of a, like a mob kind of enforcer who is uh, kind of hassling uh, Gene Hackman, who is like a kind of a corrupt meat baron, who not only is um, kind of not only is is kind of beef his game, um, but he also runs a kind of a prostitution ring, um, and it's uh, about. Lee Marvin trying to bring Gene Hackman down and it's every bit as entertaining as that sounds um, and if you are not sold on it um, I will kind of tell you they also featured one of the first performances from Sissy Spacek very early role for her um, also involves uh, an opening shot an opening scene where um, you kind of realise that a human body is being processed for sausages um, which is good and there's also a foot chase between Lee Marvin uh, I think Sissy Spacek might not be her. It's definitely um, the female lead in the film. Uh, a foot chase between them and a combine harvester uh, that happens through a field. So if you like your kind of rural action, um, it's definitely a film you should watch. Uh, it's kind of hard to track down, but uh, if you kind of you put your mind to it, I'm sure you'll find it. So, yeah, thanks uh, very much for listening, everybody. That's your lot on the subject of cops. Um, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher or Player FM. And if you've really enjoyed the show, please do leave us a little review. Um, you can find us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast and on Facebook too. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Oh, I forgot to say that we're Finding Dory yesterday. They uh, showed the Nine Lives trailer. <laughs> that is fucked up. That is like a, uh, do you know, like a kind of a joke movie trailer you'd see in a really bad like National Lampoon's film. I can't yeah. understand how that's got to cinemas. That's I, that's unreal. I refuse to believe that it's a real film. I think people are going to buy tickets for it, go in there, and it will just be a blank screen for an hour and a half. And then a title card just saying, ha ha, because it, mm. it, it looks so fake. In fact, my friend Aaron years ago, he would come up with the idea for ideas for bad, uh, like commercial movies that he, he thought could get made because of how kind of dumb they were. Mm. And he had one called Spare Dad, which is about <laughs> a dad who becomes a, a bowling ball <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. who helps his son win a tournament. And uh, the first thing I thought, the first thing I did when I saw the Nine Lives trailer was send it to him and say, I think you've got a lawsuit on your hands here because Mm. everything that he described the film as seems to have cropped up in in Nine Lives apart from the bowling aspect. Yeah, it's... There's a Twitter account called Shit Pitches. I don't know (laughs) if you've, like, seen it. and It's just, like, 140 character pictures and it'll say something like, Oh, Matt Damon is an award-winning astrophysicist who learns he can talk to locusts, but using only his knees. Like, <laughs> just, like ridiculous pictures like that. It just seems something that would be rejected from that for being too stupid. But mm. yeah, here we are. Okay, cool.